Go ahead and open your Bibles if you have them. We're in Genesis chapter 16. For those of you that have been tracking along in this series with our series about Abraham, I hope that you've seen that uh, although Abraham was a man of great faith, that's how we think of him, he was also a man who was learning to be a man of faith. He was a man who was learning to walk by faith and not by sight. And that's the story that we've been tracking with so far. In fact, uh, I think we come to a little bit of a close of one act in the narrative of Abraham and the opening of a new one. I, I would describe it this way. Act one, the curtain has closed last week and the scene that the curtain closed on was Abram staring up at the stars. Remember the promise that God had given him. In fact, this scene behind me depicts that. And then immediately after God promises that he will make his descendants as numerous as the stars, he formalizes this covenant through this odd to our ears, but this very serious ceremony with the animals split open, God passing through, all that to remind Abram, I will do it, God says. And then the curtain closes on act one and it opens on act two some years later and you're going to see the theme that will dominate this second act of Abraham's life is the theme of his descendant who is going to be Abraham's descendant how is this promise going to come true and you'll see the tension that's introduced even in verse one of chapter 16 in this well before we read it I want to point out two unique characteristics of chapter 16 of Genesis. Uh, One is, I would describe this as a low point, maybe the lowest point in Abraham's story. You'll see why as we go through it. But the past few chapters have been high points for Abram. He's been learning to walk by faith. Good things have been happening. He's been trusting God in ways, even when it didn't make sense to trust God. He's been leaning into that, and and God has been showing up in his life in even literal ways. And now we get to chapter 16, and you're going to see some things take a different turn in Abram's faith. I think the second reason why this chapter is unique is it gives us a little more of an in-depth look at some persons, some personalities Uh, You're not only going to get to know Abram a little bit better, but you're going to get to know Sarai for the first time. You really get to meet her uh, in living color. You'll also get to know a woman named Hagar. And as I was reading through this chapter of the last couple weeks and studying it, I kind of thought, you know, this is a little bit like an episode from the TV show Parenthood. Some of you may have watched that show. It ended earlier this year. But every episode, they zoom in on a particular a family or a particular character, a husband and wife or a father and child, and, and you see all the messiness that real life is in family relationships. And they don't pull any punches in the stories. In fact, when my wife and I first started watching this show after a couple episodes, I said, Jody, I can't watch this anymore. It's too real world. You know, I'm chasing little kids around the house and, you know, we're all dealing with dynamics with with siblings and parents and things. And I thought, I want to watch TV to escape. (laughs) I'm not escaping. This is real life. But what I found over time with that show is I came to identify with some of the characters. I came to identify with some of the humanity, some of the storylines, and I think Genesis 16 is a lot like that. In fact, my hope, my prayer, my goal, I'll just lay it out there for this morning, is that you find yourself in this mess. 
And you may be thinking, well, that doesn't sound very encouraging way to start the message. But, but you need to find yourself in these characters, in this story, in order to hear the message, in order to hear the end uh, uh, sort of moral or the lesson that God is going to teach us through this passage. In fact, here's the way we'll block out this message. I'm going to divide this fairly long chapter into two parts, verses 1 through 6, and we'll spend most of the sermon on that. That tells the, the, the mess. It talks about what happened in this particular chapter. And then we'll close the service by looking at verses 7 through 16 where God shows up and he does something rather remarkable and he teaches a lesson and we'll apply that lesson to ourselves. But I want to take the time to zoom in on each of these three main characters of this chapter because I think that's where we're going to find our own stories. Well, let's begin. Start in verse 1 of Genesis 16. Follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read it to you. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from having children. Please, go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. After Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as his wife. I want to just pause there and let's talk for a few minutes about what's going on. Did you catch the tension in the first phrase of Genesis 16? Remember, the last we saw Abram, he's hanging out under these stars, (laughs) God was promising him, and then 16, verse 1, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. There's a tension. How is God going to fulfill his promise? It's not unlike what happened in chapter 12 when God made these promises to Abram, and then immediately, 12, verse 10, now there was a famine in the land, right? The land that God gave to Abram to sustain him had a famine. What was Abram going to do? And you remember what he did. It's relevant to this story. Abram made a decision to flee to Egypt. He goes to Egypt and he's afraid for his life in Egypt. So he tells his beautiful wife, Sarah, I want you to lie for me and say that we're nothing but brother and sister because I'm afraid they'll kill me to get to you because you're beautiful. And Sarai complies with that scheme. And of course, it turns out poorly. God has to intervene. He brings them back to the land of Canaan, and they bring back with them, almost certainly, a maidservant named Hagar. Note that the author goes out of his way on two of occasions to remind you or to tell you that Hagar is Egyptian. There's repetition here in the text. In verse 1, it says she had an Egyptian maid named Hagar. Verse 3, Sarai took Hagar the Egyptian. Now, why is the narrator taking such pains to remind us this. I, I, I think there's two reasons. Number one, it's a deliberate link back to the sojourn in Egypt, I believe, connecting those dots for us. And that'll come back into play as this story unfolds. But number two, it's a reminder to the original hearers who would have been the Hebrew people that had just been rescued from Egypt, you see. So when the original audience would have heard the story told, they would have thought, Surely God did not create us as a nation through our uh, Abram mar- marrying an Egyptian woman, right? Surely that is not the father of our nation that came by half Egyptian blood. They abused us. They hate us. 
They've chased us down. They have murdered our babies. So there's this tension in the text. It can't happen this way. Yet Sarai and Abram move forward. Let's see what happens as their scheme begins to unfold. Verse 4. He went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms. But when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. And I want us to leave the story at this point the low point, in my opinion, of the entire Abraham narrative. There's no other way to describe this than a complete disaster. From Sarai's perspective, she thought she could scheme and plan to make something good happen, and her plan has turned against her to the point that she has now driven away her own maid servant. From Hagar's perspective, apparently her life with Sarai had become so miserable that she thought her chances were better out in the wilderness than to stay around with her mistress. And from Abram's perspective, his wife, now second wife, Hagar, and her unborn child, his child, who was apparently at this point perhaps the heir, their lives are in grave danger. It's one of those moments where when you're reading a novel, you're watching a movie, or or, or there's a narrative unfolding, and you think, how are these pieces going to be put back together for everything to be okay in the end? It's one of those moments in the Abraham story, and what I want us to do is zoom in on each character, because there's an awful lot of humanity going on here. You know, we tend to read the words sometimes of a story from the Bible, and it kind of just has this far away sound to it. This is real. These were real people. And again, my hope is that you'll see yourself. Let's look first at Sarai. Well, we hear from her in her own words for the first time in the scripture. And uh, admittedly, it's not a very pretty picture that's painted of Sarai in this chapter, at least. Uh, She's tending to blame everyone but herself. Look at verse 2. Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from having children. Now, as a statement of fact, that's true. But we sense there's more going on underneath in Sarah's heart. So what she's essentially saying is to Abram, I I know we should trust God to wait and allow his plan to unfold, but he's made that too difficult for us. How can we trust him? I'm infertile. And there's a sense that she's saying, God is forcing me to do something that normally I would never even consider. Take my maid. She doesn't stop there with her blame. Who else does she blame? Her husband. Every time I read this passage, I find verse 5 so interesting. And I, I want to just say, Sarai, this, this was your idea. <laughs> she's blaming Abram. Now, what I, what I sense underneath her words is essentially, you know, Abram... This woman is not my equal. You need to stand up for me. She is acting like she is above me now. You need to put her in her place, Abram. 
So Sarai blames God, Sarai blames Abram, she blames everyone but herself. I want you to see another side of this woman, however. A side that may just soften your heart for her just a little bit. As far as we can tell, Sarai never chose to go to Canaan. As far as we can tell, God didn't show up in her life and appear to her and call her by name and lead her to this place. Up to this point, she has been loyal to her husband. She has stood by him even when he asked her to do something terrible. She lied for him. She was given over to Pharaoh. She literally was willing to sacrifice her body to save the skin of her husband. And now here she is 10 years into this time in Canaan living in this hard wilderness in a place that's far far away from her home and she looks up and she says I'm imagining in my own mind God didn't tell me anything about the stars some of you can identify with Sarai I think I can you look around you see that your reality is maybe nothing like you thought it would be Some parts of your life are nothing like you hoped they'd be, like you dreamed they'd be, like you even believe God may have promised to you, or at least if if he was a good, loving God toward you to show up in your life and provide for you, things would look different. Not only that, but you've probably been deeply wounded by people that you thought cared about you, like Sarah had. It's easy to become cold sometimes. It's easy to become sort of clenched up inside it's easy to lash out even in small subtle ways and her desperation Sarai keeps digging a bigger and bigger hole isn't that true for all of us sometimes when when we feel desperate for something when we feel like there's something we need we've got to have it and God's not giving it to us what do we do We, 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 we scheme we grasp we manipulate We have a hard time doing this. We take control. And this is what Sarah is doing. And all along in the background as we do this too, what's the prime prime emotion that we're experiencing is fear. We're just afraid. I think Sarah is afraid. I think she's disillusioned. She's disappointed. Here's one thing we can learn from Sarah in this narrative is that when we take control this way, more often than not, we will make a mess of things. I was remembering when I was listening to this story and I was reading this story, I was remembering an incident when I was about eight years old. I had a younger brother, Brian was at six at the time, and we really loved chocolate chip cookies. I still do to this day. And one day I said, Brian, I'd love some chocolate chip cookies. And mom's out, you know, and our, our, our dad was, was there, but we thought, let's make the cookies ourselves. So we went up in the cupboard and we grabbed the, the yellow bag of Nestle Toll House chocolate chips. And I knew there was a recipe on there. I've seen my mom read it. So I read through the recipe and as I read, Brian poured the ingredients in and we measured everything out meticulously. And, and we ended up with this nice bowl uh, of the, the batter, the cookie dough. And we were stirring it and I had this idea. I thought, you know, 
As much as I love chocolate chip cookies, you know what would be the one thing better than chocolate chip cookies? Chocolate, chocolate chip cookies. So I said, Brian, go to the fridge and get out that can of Hershey's chocolate syrup. So he went and got the can of Hershey's chocolate syrup. I poured about half of that can of Hershey's chocolate syrup. Now, some of you, how about half of you in the room are thinking, what's wrong with that? <laughs> that was me, right? So we're mixing this up. It, it turned from this, this nice golden color to this deep, rich, dark chocolate. And I was so excited about these cookies. And we spooned them out onto the, the cookie sheet and put them in the oven, set the time for the right time, set the temperature for the right temperature, went out in the yard and threw the football around. The buzzer went off at the appropriate time. We ran inside so excited to get these cookies. We opened up the oven and what did we find? There were no cookies. (laughs) It was a massive, goopy, chocolate disaster. The the cookies had just seeped into one another and it just formed this this mass of goo. And I I thought to myself, you know, this is okay. We can salvage this situation. We'll just wait for them to cool and then cut them into brownies. We'll have brownies instead of cookies. Great idea. So we went back outside and, and threw the football this time for 45 minutes or an hour. Came back in, tried to cut that thing and there was no cutting that mess. It was hard as a brick. And so I said, Brian, hand me a fork. Hand me a fork. I went, bam, Bam, started pounding on this cookie sheet, right? The, the fork started bending. So I said, get a steak knife. <laughs> this is all true. Grab the steak knife, start sawing away, right? Mutilating the steak knife. And finally I said, okay, we're not having brownies. We're not having cookies. Took the pan, which was now destroyed. Took the fork, took the knife, both destroyed. Slipped them in the kitchen sink for my mom to come find later. <laughs> Now, life is like this sometimes. We think we know what we're doing, but we often make a mess. Sarah, I must have been thinking, this is my domain. This is my area of expertise, right? My maidservant, my husband, my child, my future. It was not her domain. All of us desperately want things to go well for us, right? Nothing wrong with that. The problem is we think we know what's best for us. Far better to yield control to someone who knows what he is doing. Don Anderson wrote a brief little book about the story of Abraham, and the title alone is worth the read. He calls it this, Delay is Not Denial. This is what he says about this incident. It's a shame that Sarai had not comprehended the fact that her infertility could be used by the Lord to put her in a place of dependence on him so that fruit could be born in her life. Let's zoom in on Abram. The most striking characteristic in this narrative compared to the previous chapters in this story is that Abram is now in the background in chapter 16. In fact, you could accurately say that he is remarkably passive in this part of the story. Now, this was a problem because he was the patriarch. The patriarch had the responsibility of caring for everyone who was in his household. And Hagar, at one point in this story, becomes his wife and her unborn child becomes his child. And 
For my mind, the most tragic moment in Abraham's long life is in verse 6 of chapter 16. He relinquishes Hagar into the hands of his hurting, bitter, upset wife, Sarai, and he says, do to her what is good in your sight. Note that when Hagar leaves, Abram does not go after her. Where have we seen this in Genesis before? A man's wife grasps onto something desirable which is not part of God's plan for her and her husband stands somewhere in the background passive, observing and then enters into the mess himself. In fact, you may find it interesting that the Hebrew verbs in Genesis 16.3 are the exact same Hebrew verbs used in Genesis 3. Let me read them to you. Genesis 3 verse 6. Eve took the fruit and gave it to her husband. Genesis 16.3. Sarai took Hagar and gave her to her husband. It's the only time in the Old Testament where those verbs are paired that way and constructed in a sentence that way, the author, by power of the Holy Spirit, is deliberately making a connection back to Genesis 3. He's saying, this was not right. And Abram was called to be out front of that situation. I believe, I believe Abram was called to be helping his wife. Abram was the one that God had called to be the patriarch of the family. Now, both Adam and Abram received and consumed and went outside of God's plan. Men, in particular, don't miss the devastation and mess that results from a leader standing on the sideline when he's called to be in the game. Some of you, men and women, can identify with Abram. Called to be leading, should be out front, called to be strong, called to be speaking the promises of God and reminding someone close to you that God is in charge when they don't have the faith to believe it. And instead, you're passive. You're in the background. I know I can identify with that. My opinion, and I can't prove this, but I think some of Abram's passivity goes back to what happened with he and Sarai in Egypt. Um, I have to imagine him thinking, How can I lead a woman that I have betrayed? How can I stand up and be the one in her life to say, Sarai, this is not God's way of providing for us when I had previously manipulated her to go along with my scheme. I believe that when Abram came out of Egypt back into Canaan, he not only carried the wealth and possessions that God had allowed him to obtain in Egypt, but he carried something else around on his back as well, and that is a hurting wife, a part of a broken relationship that Abram did not know how to solve. I can't prove that from the text, but I have to imagine This had something to do with Abram's passivity. 
Well, finally, let's look here at Hagar. Let's zoom in on her. She will end up being the main character of this chapter. You'll see that as we continue to read in a moment. She was a maid servant that was a little different than a slave. She was a uh, personal servant of Sarai. For those of you that love Downton Abbey, think Anna and her relationship with Mary Crawley. So uh, Hagar would have helped um, Sarai get dressed. She would have gotten water for her when she needed to bathe. She would have run errands for her, this type of thing. It would have been an intimate and close relationship. There would have been a high level of trust in her relationship with her mistress, Sarai. Make no mistake, Hagar is a victim in this story. She's a victim of Sarai and Abram's desperate plan. She has no say in the matter. As far as we can tell from the text, no thought is given to her desires or dreams. No thought that maybe she should have a husband who would love her first and not be the secondary husband of some other man. No thought that maybe uh, there was someone else in her life that may have wanted to be with her. No thought to her dreams. Her role in this narrative and her role and her position in that society would have been to do whatever her master dictated for her to do. And for me, this is why this passage is so hard to read. That Sarai and Abram don't seem to view Hagar as anything more than a piece of property to be used for her reproductive ability. She was a person. She was a person created in God's image. Some of you can identify with Hagar. Things have been taken away from you that you had no control over. Perhaps you've been taken advantage of, maybe a victim of relationships of power where your humanity was tread on by someone else's self-interest. Other people's hurt, other people's woundedness, other people's bitterness and brokenness poured out on you for you to bear. Now, Hagar's not represented as blameless in this story. If you notice in verse 4, her humanity seeps out. It says she despised her mistress. And yet, as you will also see, the rest of the chapter primarily vindicates Hagar. And so where we left off at the end of verse 6, Hagar's in a desperate, dangerous situation. She and her unborn child both are. You see, her survival depended on the protection of a family clan. And she's been driven away by Sarai from the protection of the family clan. She became someone who was instantly marginalized in that society. There was no police force. There was no government to step in and care for her and provide for her and protect her. She was essentially at the mercy out there in the wilderness of whatever passerby decided he had planned and an interest in her or whatever wild beast decided he was desperate enough to try to take her down. In that culture, in that geography and climate, Sarai was as good as dead. I want to read to you the rest of the story. Follow along, verse 7. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. By the way, that area was in between Canaan and Egypt. You see, Hagar was going back to her homeland. He said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, 
where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child, and you will bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him, and he will live to the east of all his brothers. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, quote, You are a God who sees. For she said, have I even remained alive here after seeing him? Therefore the well was called Ber Lahairoi. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. Look again at the front of verse 7. Now the angel of the Lord found her. I can imagine that after Hagar's experience with Sarai and Abram that she wanted nothing to do with their God. And yet he found her. He showed up. There's an interesting thing going on here with this Angel of the Lord. Anytime you see that phrase written that way in the scripture, the definitive angel of the Lord, there's something more going on most likely than just an angel of the Lord. Most scholars agree that this would have been God himself showing up to Hagar. In fact, I think there's a strong likelihood, and and Michael mentioned this a couple weeks ago as this has happened Uh, before in the narrative, that this was a pre-incarnated appearance of Jesus Christ. Can't prove that, but I think it was. She certainly speaks to him as if he is God. He certainly speaks to her as if he is God. I don't think it's too far a stretch to say it this way. Jesus found Hagar. Here is a marginalized woman treated as nothing but property from man's perspective, but from God's perspective, she's worth showing up for. From God's perspective, she's worth speaking to. In fact, she's worth calling by name. You might find it interesting that in verse 8, when the angel of the Lord calls her by name, there is no other instance in all of the ancient Near Eastern literature that we've discovered where a deity calls a woman by her name. Hagar, the angel of the Lord. Likely Jesus Christ himself saying, Hagar, he found her. Reflect for a moment that this is God's heart throughout the scriptures. His heart is for the outcast, the desperate, the marginalized in society. His heart is for the orphan, the widow, the impoverished, those who are treated unjustly time and time again in the Old and New Testaments. He shows up, he intervenes, he instructs those who hear his voice to care for them, to reach out for them, and he shows up in the life of this abused, pregnant, maidservant, Hagar. So how does she respond? 
She responds the same way that, that you and I would. There's this sense of awe. In other words, it's the same way that you and I respond when God shows up in our lives in definitive ways. We worship. We worship. I want you to notice, this is uh, uh, further in the text, she says, she calls upon the name of the Lord. In fact, she's able to give the name of the Lord a title. And the title that she gives the name of the Lord is, is you are God who sees. That's the name she assigns God. You're God who sees. This is significant in the Abraham journey because every time you hear these words, someone calling upon the name of the Lord or, or calling on the Lord, that's worship. And where you hear that phrase throughout the Abraham narrative, good things are happening. So we've talked before about certain sections of this narrative are bracketed by that phrase. Abram called upon the name of the Lord and then there's something that happens and then Abram calls upon the name of the Lord. Whatever happens in the middle of that's gonna be good, right? Because Abram is in a state of worship. Well, who's worshiping here? It's not Abram, it's not Sarai, it's Hagar. And something good is happening as, Sarah, as uh, Hagar calls upon the name of the Lord. As is often the case in the Hebrew narrative, names are so important. In fact, often in, in Hebrew stories, what you find is when a name is given, it shares the lesson, the story, the big idea of the whole passage. And this is certainly true in here. So let's look at these names. Ishmael means God hears. He hears the cry of this rejected woman. Verse 11, you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. I want you to look at another name. The name that Hagar gave to God in verse 13, we've referenced this already, is God sees. So Ishmael, God hears. This name that Hagar assigns, God sees. And then she reiterates that with what she names the well in verse 14, Bear Lahai Roy. Rough translation to that would be something like this. I have now seen the one who sees me. Isn't that beautiful? I have seen the one who is seeing me. I was eyeball to eyeball with God. And what is God trying to say in all of this? The message to Hagar is the same as the message to Abram, the same as the message to Sarai. Because by the way, Hagar would have brought this message back to them. And the message is this, God hears and God sees. Notice that the angel told Hagar to go back, right? And, and I think it wasn't just because she was carrying Abram's unborn son that was part of it. I think the angel wanted her to share the story, to share the names. Abram and, Hag and uh, Sarah, I need to be reminded of this. So I picture Hagar coming back and falling, you know, on, on her face in front of her mistress who abused her. And that would have taken all the humility that God could put inside of her. And then telling Sarai and Abram the story of God showing up in her life. And what was the message? What was the moral of the story that, that would have just smacked Abram and Sarai in the face? God hears. God sees. You see, if only they'd remembered that. If only they had had that in their mind. God heard their cries of desperation. God sees their barren state. God knows what he's doing. He's intimately familiar with their situation. He is a God who hears. He is a God who sees. That's the message that not only Hagar needed, but that's the message that Abram and Sarai needed. And of course, that's the message for us from this chapter of Genesis. God hears. God sees. 
the one who shows up to redeem this story shows up to redeem your story. He is the God who hears. He hears your cries, your silent prayers, your groans, your sighs. He is the God who sees. He sees your desperate situation. He sees the mess that you've made or the mess that's been made by others in your life and he will do his work of redemption in the mess. So when you can find yourself in this story, you can also find the hero of the story. You can find your rescuer. You can find Jesus Christ showing up to teach you, to instruct you, to remind you, God hears, God sees, do you believe? I think one of the questions that the whole narrative of Abraham raises in our minds is, what do we do while we wait for the promise to come true? We talked about that tension between our reality and the promise. And for Abram and Sarai, note that Sarai does not conceive at the end of chapter 16. Even when they get the message, they get the picture In fact, it'll be another 15 years before Isaac is born. But what do we do while we wait? Those of you that are waiting right now, that are struggling, that are feeling the tension, what do you do while you wait? Well, I think we take a cue from Hagar. We call upon the name of the Lord. We worship. Good things happen. When we call upon the name of the Lord, and I don't mean by that that suddenly your life changes and you know, your debt's erased and then all of a sudden you know, your womb is open and all these wonderful things, relationships are healed. That may not be God's plan right now for you. But good things happen when you call upon the name of the Lord because it aligns your heart and your mind with the heart and the mind of the one who is hearing you and the heart and the mind of the one who is seeing you. I want to give you an opportunity to do that. We want to close our service by us as a body calling upon the name of the Lord in worship. I'm going to pray in a minute, then we're going to sing a song. And I'll go ahead and tell you this. The the words of this song over and over are going to remind us, God, you are faithful. God, you are faithful. Now, here's the thing. There are some of you in this room that you can't say those words right now with any kind of integrity because you're not sure about it. You don't think you believe it, actually. And you may need to just be for a little while this morning while the words are sung over you. In fact, I'm going to ask us as a congregation to, to begin the song by just staying in our seats, at least for the first part of the message, because there are people in the room, they just can't believe it right now. Now, others of you, you're there. You can say he is faithful, right? He's showed up in my life. I've seen it. I know it. Maybe he hasn't shown up yet the way you want him to, but you've got this faith to believe he's faithful. I want you to sing, and I want you to sing loud because the people around you that can't sing, they need you to sing for them. They they need to borrow your faith a little bit this morning, and this is what we can do for one another as a body is we can be the body of Christ together this morning in this. So I'm going to pray for us that we would do that. Bow your heads, our Father. We need you. Whether we are victims of someone else's 
betrayal and hurt, whether it was us ourselves that levied the hurt against others, whether we're just afraid and we're desperate for things not coming true, maybe things in our lives are going well and we're just a little smug about it, God, we need you. Allow us to feel and sense our desperation even as we find ourselves in the pages of your word. And Father, I pray as we sing the song that those that have the faith to believe these words would sing it out as an act of worship to you. And those who cannot yet sing and believe these words that you would give them the faith to believe. In the name of Jesus, amen.